This series is all about family. Uh, if you're familiar with our church calendar, during the summer months, especially June, July, August, we try to do something of a doctrinal nature, of a teaching nature to kind of build things up and encourage us for the next year and cycle in church. And we, we decided as a group of elders, August would be a good time as families are going back to church to talk about the idea of family, that family was a very important topic and discussion in today's culture. In fact, I think it's something that's very much overlooked in today's culture. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. You go ahead and turn there and it says this, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a companion, a helper suited to his needs. Now, you might think that and think that puts, read that and think that puts men in this station above woman. Listen, woman, you are made for man. You got to be submissive. Well, let me... Let me give you a little bit deeper picture here. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 set up the creation story. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see something very specific that God starts doing. He starts creating. He starts creating on purpose complementary binaries. Stay with me for a second because I'm going to use language that you hear in culture and you might even hear it used a little poorly. He creates complementary binaries. He does it all through the creation story. He creates heaven and earth. He creates night and day or light and dark. He creates heaven and sky or even the waters and the sea. He creates, I'm sorry, the, the sky and the sea. He creates the ocean and the land. He creates the sun and the moon or the evening and the morning. He is intent on complementary binaries that have a working force together. They work in tandem to accomplish a goal that God is setting up. It's very important that they are binaries. They, they, they are singular in their nature, but they are complementary when they come together. They are singular, but together they become a binary that teaches us how the world is to operate. The sun and the moon, the evening, in the morning, creates a 24-hour period called a day. We understand that the heavens and the earth, the heavens, God's heavenly abode and the earth, the separation of spirit and man, who someday will be united as one as God's kingdom finally comes to earth. God first created man as a singularity, alone in the presence of God. It's a funny choice of words there. How can you be alone if you're in the presence of God? Well, Unfortunately, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20 teaches us that man, though he walked with God in the cool of the day, felt alone because he didn't have his complementary binary helping him in this life. Adam, For Adam, uh, there was not found a helpmate for him. And verse 22, and it says, and then, and, and the rib uh, which the Lord had taken out of man, he made woman. He brought her unto the man, and therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So God puts man to sleep. He creates complementary binaries. This is how the world is to function, that these two singularities come together and create polar opposite binaries, night and day, the sea and the land. They have an operation together that shows us how the world is to be united together, brought back together, complementary of one another. Then he creates man in a singularity. He looks at man, and he realizes that there is no complementary portion to man. There is, is no other side to man on planet Earth. Though he walked with God, 
Though he spoke with God, though he was in communion with God, God said it's not good for man to be alone, even being alone in the presence of God. So I'll create for him a complementary binary. I'll create for him uh, someone to get along with and to commune with. I'll create for him someone to work with and to love. I'll create for him someone to have. And he puts man to sleep. The Bible story is that he takes a rib out, just signifying that of the same substance that man was created, a woman. And this woman is presented before the man. And the Bible says there in Genesis chapter 2 that for this reason, when men and women come together, they leave their families, they cleave to one another, and they create in them one flesh. This is the institution of marriage. This is the institution of a man and a woman in relationships. Now, you might say, but pastor, I've heard there's all kinds of different ways in which we can self-identify sexuality and, and our, our, our sexual desires and all this stuff. I, and, and listen, I get it's confusing out there. The Bible is very, very plain in Genesis. This is how God created the world. He created this station for a reason and for a purpose. It's not to diminish anyone who might feel differently. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Most men, given the opportunity, are polygamous by nature. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 doesn't allow for that. Most men, if they had the opportunity, would be with many different women. Yet under the gospel, they're told you have to put that down. It doesn't mean that every man doesn't fight that to some degree. Any man that says they don't fight the idea of looking at another woman other than their spouse is a liar. Every man does. It's part of how we're wired. And if a, if a person comes up in the right way, shape, form, a man is probably going to divert his attention. The first look is in sin, second, third, and fourth, eh, you, you got a problem. But what Jesus is, and, and the scriptures are teaching here in this idea is that though you might have a pull, a force that wants to pull you away from God's intention, that the creation story, the whole of the creation story says, no, I have a purpose for man and woman. And this is what it looks like. Now, you might say to yourself, but pastor, I'm single. Pastor, I, I've done the marriage thing, and, you know, we're, I'm past that. Maybe you're widowed, and you're just at a place where, you know, you don't know if you're going to get into a, another marriage relationship. Well, let me help you with that as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and turn there. But as we read in Genesis, man was alone with God. God created for him a singular binary so the two could come together and become complementary together as one. Yet this shows us that God wasn't enough in the garden. Man should have been satisfied to walk with God, to be with God, to be in his presence. Yet he made it so that our relational needs must involve other people. Even if you are single, for whatever reason, you, maybe it's a divorce, uh, maybe you've gone through the loss of a spouse, you still have need for human relationships. You still have a need in your heart. Those relationship goals must be met because, because you will not be happier in life than your relational life. Whatever that relational life looks like, you will not be happier than what that looks like. So if you have great friends and family that you can run to and have a relationship with and commune with and connect with on a relational level, that will set the barometer for your happiness. If you are in a marriage context and that marriage is not working out the way you anticipated, that will set the barometer for your happiness. 
the greater that marriage context ticks up the scale and the greater you become one flesh and the greater you become in one communion together, the higher likelihood you're going to be happy and your happiness is going to increase. It's not a joke that old people who kind of sit together and love on one another and hug each other's neck, it's not a joke that those are some of the happiest people on the planet. My grandmother and my grandfather were a really good example for me growing up. I had one set of grandparents. My others had passed well before I could even remember them. The set of grandparents, they're German. They're both, well, as far as we know, they're both German. My grandfather was adopted, so we're not 100% sure of his total family lineage. We're pretty sure he's German. And so they were constantly picking at each other. My grandmother, she got Parkinson's, and he would care for her. And at the beginning, he kind of made it a joke. He would joke about her tremors, and he would joke about her inability to hold food and things, and he would kind of pick at her a little bit, and all in jest, all in fun, also that he would take the focus off of her issue so that he would look like kind of like the bad guy. I didn't realize what he was doing until much later. Until she got really, really bad. Until she got so bad that she couldn't even sleep because she'd shake so hard it would wake her up. She'd, say, she'd shake so hard it would pull her out of bed. One day I was talking with him, and we're just talking about my grandmother's condition. She barely knew I was there. We had come back from uh, serving elsewhere. I think we were in Kentucky, and we came back here just to see family and friends. And we were talking, and I said, Grandpa, you know, you don't, you don't have to do this. There are care facilities that can care for her really, really well, and they'll attend to all of her needs, and it'll give you a little bit more freedom. And he's a strong guy, so he's not going to let me ever see him crying. But he's told me very bluntly and very distinctly, she will never leave this house. This is her house. She's going to be here forever. This is, this is where she's going to spend her last days. And I'll care for her even if I have to cut up her food into little tiny pieces. I'll do whatever I have to do. He wasn't the perfect caregiver by any means. But he showed us, and he showed our family what it looks like for two to become one. That you care for someone to that extent that you are one. That regardless of how hard it is, regardless of how difficult it is, regardless of the hardship in front of you, you care for one another. This doesn't go away because you're single. This doesn't go away because maybe you're widowed or divorced. Maybe you're in a different station in life now. This means that we have to find human relationships not to replace, but to supplement what God intended through the marriage covenant. Because on your own, if you become a singularity, God's very specific in Genesis, you will be alone. It is not a good thing. You can be in the presence of God, worshiping him all day and night. If you don't have good, solid human relationships, the barometer for happiness in your life will be limited. You won't understand total fulfillment and happiness. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Two can accomplish more than twice as much as one, for the results can be much better. If one falls, the other pulls him up. But if a man falls when he is alone, he's in trouble. Great words from Ecclesiastes. That you and I can shoulder each other's burdens. That when we understand the depth of human relationship and how important it is, that you and I can shoulder and care for one another. Now, what this means in a marriage context is your wife's burdens are your burdens and your husband's burdens are your burdens. I, my wife and I live this out. Probably she, she is a shining example of what this looks like. For those of you that know, a few years ago, I, I tore the tendons in my, my triceps working out. 
I was immobilized. I had traction from my wrist to my shoulder. I couldn't bend them at all. At the same time, we had a six-month-old baby and a four-year-old. So, you know, our house was quiet and there was nothing going on. So my wife had to care for not one baby, but two babies. And one baby was an adult baby who did not like to be put up in these, in these casts. But I was in that for a couple months, like two and a half months. For two and a half months, she did everything for me, except for one thing. The doctor gave me 30-degree bend in this arm. So there's one activity she didn't have to be a part of, and she is eternally grateful <laughs> to the doctor for that one activity that she didn't have to be a part of. She didn't help dress me, brush my teeth. The worst part about not being able to use your arms, you can't touch your face. Think about how many times you just, you can't do it. After a while, I'm just rubbing myself on Lori like, like a dog. Gosh, my face itches, you know. She's like, use the pillow. I'm like, I can't. It's not far. It's too far away. If I go down, I can't get back up, you know. She was a great example that if two are together and one falls, they can help each other up. If I would have been a single man and torn off my tricep tendons like that and been laid up, I would have had to hire someone. I would have had to go to my mom and dad's house. My mom would have loved to serve me. In fact, I think she wouldn't have cared about that 30-degree bend in my arm. Like, Your baby's home. <laughs> She's done it before. <clears throat> she would have loved to serve her baby again, but it wouldn't be the same thing as having that person you're in relationship with, fellowship with, communion with, help lift you up. In a marriage context, that's what it's about. That when we fall and we trip and we stumble, that we are not alone. That you find that your partner hits the dirt, you do everything you can to lift them up. You do everything you can to strengthen them up, to undergird them, to show them love, compassion, grace. This is what it means to be a complementary part of the binary. This is what it means to say that I'm man or I'm woman, but I compliment my husband. I compliment my wife. In the same way, you need to find people, if you're single, who are part of your life who can compliment you, who can help you. You don't want to have the friends that I call that are the okay friends, where they tell you everything's okay. You want to do this? That's okay. You want to do that? That's okay. You got to have friends who are stubborn enough to look you in the face People who are stubborn enough in their relationships to look you in the face and say, what is wrong with you, idiot? That is a dumb idea. And not get mad and fight about it. But understand, they're a compliment to what you're doing in life. They want to pick you up. For the first few years of this church, I had a friend of mine from college who used to listen to every single one of my sermons. So I wanted to get better. I wanted to make sure that I was on a good teaching path. I wanted to make sure I wasn't saying anything stupid that I'd have to kind of recant later. And so Jared listened to almost every one of my sermons. And I'd get a phone call. You're dumb. <laughs> that was a really bad sermon. Like, you didn't prep at all. Well, I was busy. People deserve better than that. Do better next week. Then the next week, he'd call. That was pretty good. A couple weeks later, he'd call. Man, I really like that one. Hit it out of the park. A couple weeks later, you're dumb again. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Went on like that for three years. In his life, there have been times I had to step in and say, you are dumb. You're treating your wife poorly. You're messing with your kids in a way, man. You're, you're, you're not being the dad you could be. You spend more time home. We've had to go back and forth with each other at times. That's what friendship really is. 
My marriage relationship doesn't take a back seat to that relationship. She's always primary and first. But I know that the level of the relationships that I foster in my life breeds a level of happiness. If you see people who are entirely depressed and despondent, I guarantee you, you are going to see someone whose relational value in the lives of others is very, very low, and it needs to come up. When a person experiences an actual heart blockage, the heart will grow new blood vessels and bolster other blood vessels around the blocked one. In a similar way, when we have a heart blockage in our relationships, particularly in our marriages, we will grow alternative and unhealthy ways to meet that need. When we have a blocked area, when we don't have the spousal relationship we should have, we'll go to a mom, a dad, we'll go to a trusted friend, and dump on them in the way that we should be expressing life to our spouse. We'll go to them and share with them the intimate details of our thoughts, of our feelings, when we should be keeping that back for our husband or for our wife. Some of you guys, it's as simple as turning a wrench and a grunt. A friend asks you, how you doing? Uh, how's things? Uh, how's the kids? Uh, and you don't really get involved, but that's enough to release the tension. And those uh, grunts should be for your wife. It shouldn't be silent. You shouldn't keep it balled up. When she asks you how your day is in the myriad of other things she's saying in the 14 seconds you reach the door, She's actually asking because she cares. Wives, sometimes you can talk a mile a minute. Sometimes it's just too much for dudes. I can talk a lot. I get out almost all my words here today for today in the sermon. When I go home, I don't have a lot more to say. Sometimes Lori gets really, well, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. I'm like, nope, used all my words today. Sorry, it's over. It'd be wrong for her to take that moment and not wait when I'm comfortable, when I'm ready, and to just go through with what she wants to go through for the day. It'd be wrong for her to take that to a friend or to her mother. Mom, he won't listen to me, so I'm going to talk to you. That's wrong because it's not allowing the credibility of the relationship to rise. You have to learn one another. Learn how you operate. Learn your ups and downs. Learn the emotional swings of your partner so that you can bring them in tighter, not because you want to use them as fuel for the fire later. There's a first principle when it comes to relationships, any relationship, and especially a marriage relationship. If you're garnering a relationship where you, you are going to supplement that other binary person, you're going to supplement in your life for whatever reason, maybe God's even called you to singleness, but you're going to supplement what would be a spouse, you have to learn that there's a first principle. It's first about giving. Giving is first, and receiving is always second. In any way, shape, or form that God talks about relationships in the Bible, he is constantly giving us this admonishment to give first. He is constantly saying that it's our responsibility, no matter where you're at in the totem pole of the relationship, whether you've taken first position or second position, God expects you to be a giver way before he expects you to receive. Relationships thrive only when we give as the first part of the relationship. Now, men are generally expected to do this, and I actually, I love the some of the women's lib movement stuff. I love it. I'm all for it. I wish women would ask out more dudes and pay for more stuff. I think it's awesome. Listen, Lord ever makes more money than me. She can be my sugar mama all day. I, there's no pride. I've been looking for one for a long time, so. 
I have not, there is no pride in me for that. If she wants to make more money, cool. You go for it, girl. And I'll celebrate. I'll tell her when she makes a ton of money. That's awesome. Anyway, when we fail to have our relational needs met, even as especially when we were children, we enter adulthood and we put receiving above giving. So when you were a kid or an adolescent and you, and for some reason the family structure wasn't built up the way it needed to be, or maybe it was good in some areas and not good in another, and you failed to have what should have been just normal relational needs met, you will inevitably part, start to put receiving above giving. So there'll be a deficit. And because that deficit's there and there's a hole there and you need it filled, the first thing you'll do is say, my spouse, my confidant, my beloved, they should fill that need. People get married all the time just on this purpose. They will literally get married and say, my spouse, my husband, my wife, they'll fill that need. They'll be the mom, the dad I didn't have. They'll be the confidant that wasn't in my home. They'll be the one to bring discipline. They'll be the one to put me in line. They'll be the one to manage the checkbook. They'll bring structure and order. Rather than understanding, you need to start to give of yourself first so that that relational deficit becomes swallowed up in your giving. Because I guarantee you, if you allow your spouse to, God will use them as a way to fill every hole in your pegboard. Because all of us have holes in our pegboard. All of us have areas in our pegboard that are holes that where we just have lacks and deficits. In fact, God knows the deficits that you have and knows exactly the person to bring into your life, even if they're just a confidant, but especially if they're in that marriage relationship, the marriage covenant with you. He knows exactly what deficits they need that your strengths will fill and exactly what deficits that need to be filled on the other end. It's like Legos. You stack Legos together and they have those little bumps on the top and there's perfect placement on the bottom of each brick for those blocks to lock into those little bumps. In the same way, when God brings two people together, he brings you into a match that perfectly fits the attitudes and actions, the emotional responses of both of you. You need each other more than you really understand. When we demand that the other person meet our needs first, it destroys the spirit of the relationship. So whether God's calling you into revamping your marriage, maybe you're getting married for the first time, maybe God is calling you as a single person to reach out and to establish a really strong, confident relationship with another person. God expects you to give before you expect receiving. God expects you to give before he expects you to get anything in return. If you have two people come together with that in mind, every need will be met from the other side of the aisle. Every need that could possibly happen in human relationships will be met. We are not good at this process, trust me. I meet with a ton of people pre-marriage who get married every year. Nobody's very good at this. Nobody's naturally good at this process. Even when you get married, it's incredibly difficult to look at your spouse, to get up in the morning and be like, what do you need done today? Most of us are thinking of our top 10 list that we need to check off of things that we need to get done in that day. The fact is that we are called of God to meet the needs of others first in a relational way, and that deepens every relationship. We are designed by God to find greater joy and fulfillment in giving than receiving, and I'm gonna illustrate that with a few verses. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, be good friends who love deeply. Practice 
playing second fiddle. Gosh, that's a rough one for me. God is love, and the primary action of love is to give. Comes from the message translation. The primary action of love is to give. Practice playing second fiddle. You want strong relationships or a strong marriage? You want strong relationship with your kids? You want strong relationships with a confidant? Play second fiddle. What do you need? What can I do for you? How can I, how can I help you? What can I do to increase your life? What can I do to encourage you? What can I do to bring you up to that next level? How can I feed into your life? Not an easy thing to do. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The eternal nature of coming to Christ comes because one gave first, and in his giving, in his selfless act of giving, he reaps the whirlwind, and that whirlwind is the total of humanity. He reaps a harvest that is bigger than we could ever understand, the collective souls of humanity coming to him, all those who would seek him, all those who would acknowledge him, and all those who would give their life to him. They find refuge under the cross because one man decided to give. John chapter 12 Verse 24, I tell, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed and abides alone. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. We understand that here in the context of the Midwest. You can drive down some of the highways around this city, and you will see cornfield after cornfield after cornfield. And all of us are very well aware that one seed was planted in the ground. That seed died to itself. And because it died, it sprouted roots. And in sprouting roots, it grew. And in growing, it grew a stalk. And then it grew ears of corn and multiple ears of corn and multiple seeds on multiple ears of corn to the exponential end. To the same extent, Jesus' own words, he was really talking about himself and what he would do via the cross, but it's still a principle of giving that we all have to harbor in our heart, that if we will learn to give, the multiplied effort of our giving, this isn't just financially, this is in a relational context as well. Your wife needs love, you give her love, it multiplies back to you exponentially. Your husband needs encouragement, you give him encouragement, it multiplies back to you exponentially. A relationship that you hold dear in your heart, you give to that relationship, and what you give is intent to come back into your life exponentially. Let me give you a warning. There are users. There are people who understand the biblical principles that we see outlined here of giving first. and They will use you. God says to brush them off. Leave them alone. In fact, Jesus said it this way. And when he walked into a town and he wanted to give of himself, his whole heart, his whole ministry, if they didn't receive, they knocked the dust off their feet and they walked on to the next city. That there is an opportunity for people to either use us or deny us. We knock the dust off. We don't think anymore about that. And we move on to what God has called us to. John chapter 15 and verse 13. A greater love has a man that he laid down his life for a friend. Words of Jesus. There's no greater way I can express my love for my fellow man, for my friend, for my confidant, for my wife, for my husband, than I lay down my life. You want a strong family? Learn to lay down your life for your wife, for your husband. Learn to lay down your wife for your kids, maybe even your spiritual kids. Learn to lay down your life for them. This doesn't mean you allow bad behavior, parents. 
This doesn't mean when Johnny's a brat, you say, well, I'm laying down my life for Johnny. My rules, he can break them and bend them. It's okay. No, no. Learn the velvet brick principle. Strong internal resolve, soft, approachable exterior. You need to come to a place where your resolve is steady, it's strong, it's hard. You know who you are. You know the path that you are cutting. You know exactly what you want out of this relationship and the point of which it's turning. But you are soft in your approach that you allow people to come to you. You allow people to say things that are even harsh and hard. You allow people into your life in a way that brings them in in the warm and fuzzies. They feel it when they're close. You're not cold and distant, but you're solid, you're secure in your resolve. Most parents are the other way around. They're a brick on the outside, and once the child chisels that thin layer, they get the soft heart of the parent, and they get what they want. In fact, I've seen way too many kids get what they want just by whining, blowing up their mom and dad. In fact, when I was, uh, when I was a teenager, I wanted a Mustang so bad. Oh, I wanted a Mustang. I wanted a Mustang convertible, those 80s fastbacks. I wanted one, well, not the fastback, but the convertible. I wanted one so bad. I wanted a GT. And my buddy, he got one. I was so jealous. Got this white one convertible, beautiful car. He had it for about two weeks and he wrapped it around a telephone pole. It's not the gift to give a 16-year-old. But his dad was super into cars. So he got another one. Got another one about six months later. Wrapped that one around a telephone pole. But, you know, he cried and whined that he didn't have the wheels that he wanted. So they got him another Mustang, a third one. His girlfriend wrapped that one around a telephone pole. Then he's whining and crying, God, I gotta, Dad, I got to have a, a fast car. Dad, I got to have a, a wheels that, man, people really think are cool. I got to really have it. It's part of my status. That's how they know me. So he got a lightning pickup truck, really fast pickup truck that Ford used to make. Had that one a little longer. Didn't wrap that one around a telephone pole. But in his whining and his begging, his parents were resolute. You mess up this car. You do anything to this car that will damage you. You don't take care of it. We're not going to get you another one. But it's not my fault, Dad. All right, well, we'll get you one more. You got to take care of this one, though. You can't, you can't screw up this time. Our insurance cannot go up. We can't handle the payment. You cannot mess up this time. All right, Dad, I'll do it. Well, I made another mistake. Okay, well, Johnny, you'll get another car. You know how many parents do that on one scale or another? The problem is, it's not that this is showing love. This is showing a lack of compassion. This is telling your child that your wants and demands are above the rules and structure of the house. And that your internal resolve means nothing. That you're a pushover. That you really have no strength, a backbone. That doesn't show love. Love and care says I've set honest boundaries. And if you break these boundaries, there will be consequences. Not because I'm going to hurt you, not because I'm trying to punish you, not because my wrath is being poured out on you, but because there are consequences to breaking the rules. And once you break them, these things will come. They will follow. Good parents understand that that is a show of love. In fact, the Bible says it this way, that God chastises those that he loves. Now, around Constantine, that word chastise was changed to mean beat and berate, to smack down. So we get this idea of God who's heavy-handed. And that in a heavy-handed God that God chastises or he beats or he hurts those that he loves. And that somehow Jesus comes in with his grace and mercy and slides under the beating that our Heavenly Father is going to give us and stays the beating and throws his arm up in our defense. That's not at all what that scripture means. 
The scripture is very simple, that God chastises, he maneuvers, talks to, he communes with, that God, he starts to mold and shape those that he loves. That's the word chastise in the Greek. Chastise is not about beating or berating. Chastising is about chiding, guiding, moving someone, that God will move those that he loves. And that proves to us the great love that our Father has for us, that he knows the end from the beginning, and that if we'll listen, he will pull us down life's path in a way that our best intention is before us. That's what good relationships have. They have strong, set boundaries. And that if we'll allow ourselves to express those boundaries, we will have greater depth of relationships. James chapter 1 and verse 23, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. The fact is, until we learn to look in the mirror of who God is, we will never be made whole. We will never really understand what it is to be made whole in any given relationship that we're chasing, and especially our relationships with our spouse. It says this in verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing the natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful, it is not a forgetful hearer, but does the work, that one will be blessed in what he does. Sometimes I wish I could just stay on a couple of scriptures for a long time. This is one of those. That he's saying if we would look into a mirror and we walk away and instantly forget who we are, who we're looking at, there's a faulty nature of who we are, that there's a broken down idea of who we are. But if we will learn to keep the law of liberty, the law of liberty is an interesting choice that Paul uses, or I'm sorry, James, who's this written to? Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Paul wrote two-thirds, so most of the time I'm right there. Anyway. That in this perfect law of liberty, we would learn to understand that we have a right to express our free will. But the perfect law of liberty says, God, not my will, but your will be done. That in the perfect context of liberty, sure, I can do anything I want to. I can have a bad marriage if I want to. I can tell my wife to do anything I want to tell her to do. It ain't going to happen. And she might express her will and get her way, but we can be at a battle of wills, but if I will live in the perfect law of liberty, God, I'll do your will first and primary, and in doing your will first and primary, the relationships that I have will be strong, that I'll learn the type of person I am as I give up my personal will and attach God's will to my life and to my being, that if we'll do what God's called us to in every area and in every relationship, we will be strengthened, even our kids will be strengthened. Until you look into God's mirror and are made whole, you'll determine that your relationships make you whole. At some point, people even get married. They get into relationships to to find a sense of wholeness. God called us to relationships. It's not good that we should be alone. It's not good that any one person should be a silo. You are not an island. We do life together with other people. We need others. You might like dogs or cats more than you like people at times. Fact is, you do life with other people, humans, living, breathing. That's very important. But the totality of who you are is not wrapped up in any one relationship. Your husband doesn't make you who you are. 
Your kids don't make you who you are. This was illustrated beautifully on a bumper sticker I saw not too long ago. There's all these bumper stickers out that proud parents of honor roll student at such and such school. And this bumper sticker was beautiful and it said, proud student of a parent who doesn't live vicariously through my menial academic, academic accomplishments. Absolutely love that bumper sticker. Because that's the, that, not that you shouldn't be proud of your kids, but they don't make you. Not that you shouldn't be proud of what your spouse has done. They don't make you. They don't give you value. They don't give you the full and total scope of who you are. Not that you shouldn't have wonderful relationships with great friends, but they do not determine your value. You bring all the value you're going to bring to the table the moment you show up, and it's all in Jesus. I am a child. I am a son. I am a daughter of the king. The crown I wear on my head is mine and mine alone, and nothing about this relationship can take it or taint it or tilt it. It's mine because God set it on my head. He called me. How to stay healthy in the mirror of God's word. The first thing we need to do is develop a daily devotional time. Daily devotional times with your family if they'll do it, with your kids if they'll do it. And I say that with a caveat. Some of you love daily devotional times with your spouse. Lori and I do not. We study differently. We read differently. I'm a nerd. I look at the Bible, I'm like, what does that word mean? Let's look at that word like 15 different times in four different translations. She's like, dude, I just want to read through the scriptures and get it done with. I, I'll ponder it later. I'm like, no, no, let's investigate right here, right now. Where's your Greek lexicon? Let's figure this out. It doesn't work that way for us. So we don't study the Bible together. We have devotional time together. We talk about the word of God together. We inspire one another, but we don't lay the Bible out together and start reading through scripture. It doesn't work for us. Some of you, it might. We've found that the best way for us to study with our kids is through the Kids Bible app put out by LifeChurch.tv. It's the best app we can find to study the Bible. It's a, literally a walkthrough of the scriptures, and they can touch the screen and watch the Bible stories develop, and they can read along with the characters, and they can watch little animations. It's great. Someday that won't be enough, and I'll have to answer and field hard questions from my sons as they grow through adolescence. I'll have to allow them to come to me, but there's a real honest place where we come and we are daily in devotion to the word of God, meaning that it's part of your life, it's part of your everyday life. Too many folks have made this about an hour in the morning, they read their Bible, they pray a little bit, they go throughout their day and don't think about it. That's not a devotional life. A devoted life says when the opportunity arises, we interject the truths of scripture so have a daily devotional time. Have daily devotional moments with your family, with your friends, with those around you. Attend church weekly and not monthly. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry if that's you. Listen, the average attendance is once every six weeks. I'm very aware. But the fact is there's a lot of good things to learn at a, at a church. There's a lot of things you can learn in this congregation that you can't learn outside the doors just because we're forcing relationship. We're forcing you to sit next to people. We're forcing you to sing. We're forcing you to connect and communicate. There's a little bit of a forced nature in church. It's hard to walk in the doors and not talk to anybody, especially this church. Someone will apprehend you at the door. Someone will likely accost you if you give them the opportunity. And that's a good thing. We want you to feel welcomed. We want you to feel part of the family. But church is a place of learning and gathering and developing. The next thing there. If you're married especially, work on your marriage daily and not occasionally. 
Make the opportunity to work on your marriage daily and not occasionally. Sometimes this is going to be introspective. Sometimes this is going to be a discussion. Your wife says something that thoroughly ticks you off. Think about it for a while. Don't just tell her, you dumb. Like, think about for a while what's going on, what's going on in your life, what's going on in, in your marriage context, and then bring it to the surface. But make opportunities to daily work on your marriage. If you're not married, have opportunities to daily work on that close, confident relationship, that, that confidant that you're bringing close to your life. Daily work on that. You can't expect that just to mature on its own. You can't expect, if you're single, for that relationship that God would bring into your life just to mature out of the blue. You have to work it just like you do a marriage. You have to work it just like you do really great friendships. And the next one here is to get involved in a small group. As you guys have learned and we saw today, we're having small group training here in a few weeks. As a part of small group training, that means in September, small groups will start up. We have a new process for small groups this year. We'll be talking a little bit more about it uh, as we jump back into the small group season. We kind of take a break in the summer. This season of small groups I'm really excited about because we're bringing a book to play that we haven't really used church-wide before. We've used it in one small group or another, but it's an incredible little book. It's a small book, literally can fit in your pocket. That's why it's called The Pocket Disciple. It's literally these, these moments with Jesus through his ministry and what it looks like and what it looked like for the early church to follow Jesus, what it looked like for them to experience him. We're gonna go through that as small groups in the church as we eat together, connect together, share together, so that we are better familiar as a church congregation exactly what it looked like for the early church to sit with Christ. That will help your marriage and relationship context greater than anything you can do. To know Jesus is the number one way to fix most of the holes in your marriage or in any relationship. The next one here, Matthew chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I love this scripture. I'm going to read it out of the NIV. Sometimes I like to read it out of different translations or different versions, but it says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Everything that God calls us to in response to our relationships, everything that God calls us to in response to our families and our spouses is literally easy and light if we'll do what he's called us to. This is why I can't stand the idea of the, the old ball and chain. Oh, the, ball, the old ball and chain's calling me. No, no. Your relationship's all screwed up. It's easy and light if you understand who she is and what God placed in your life. Now, I know we like to joke that way, and I'm, please understand, I'm not knocking joking. I'm all, I'm all for sarcasm. We have a lot of it in our household. But the fact is, we are not called to be brought down by another person in a marriage context. We're called to lift up and to be lifted. Marriage is a weird thing where it's a balancing board or a teeter-totter that as we lift, as we move, as we guide each other on this rocky ship of life that we're constantly being elevated. And the moment that we start to sink is the moment that we stop. The moment we start to sink is the moment we stop moving and that relationship becomes a secondary approach to our life. It is always going to be primary. And again, if you're single, you find that in somebody else who compliments you a friend, a family member, a confidant, so that you can build on that relationship. 
Jesus says in verse 30 that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he is saying is there's work to be done. But the work to be done that I placed in front of you, I've already carved out the path. I've already carved out the road. If you'll work with me, if you'll go on this journey with me, it's not going to be a lot of tugging and pulling. I'm going to show you how to do this thing, and I'm going to show you how to do it in light of my word and my will. It'll be easy. Anyone that's struggling through your marriage, my guess is you're not submitting to the will of God. Anyone that's struggling in relationships, my guess is you're not laying it at the cross and being a giver and saying, okay, God, I'm going to lay this at the cross. My husband and my wife, I'm going to give you the opportunity to work in their heart and their life, and God, I'm going to serve the best I know how. If we as a culture and as a culture of Christian believers in marriage were learned to outserve our husband or our wife, what would that do to the world around us? What would they think of us if we took it on our own shoulders to say, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to serve that woman, to serve that man with all I have in me? The world would be astonished because most marriages are like Homer and Marge Simpson. Two people just fighting at each other can barely make it through the day. God has not called you in any family context to simply pay a mortgage, to pay off a car, to send kids to college. He has called you to have a vibrant, strong, healthy marriage and family where your kids grow up and they pursue the plan of God, plan of God for their life. But that starts with you, mom and dad. That starts with you submitting to the will of God and allowing him to have his way in your heart and your life. Amen.